Welcome to Question Mark, the podcast. Exploring the greatest story ever told with open minds and open hearts. We light it up, we won't come down. And the sun can't stop us now. Watching it come true, it's taking over you. This is the greatest show, where it's covered in all the colored lights. And the runaways are on in the night. Impossible comes true, it's taking over you. This is the greatest show. Well, hello, and thank you to... I'll start like that again. Do you want to start recording again? Sorry. It's okay. Just carry on, David. It's sure. Okay. Yep. I'll count on three, two, one again. Okay. Three, two, one. Well, hello and welcome to Question Mark, a fortnightly podcast about Mark's gospel, which we think is the greatest story ever told. We're delighted to have our regular listeners. And uh, if you've just discovered this, you're very welcome here as well. My name is David Payne. I'll be your host for this, which is the 51st episode. We're over half a century through, Steph, in our journey through Mark's Gospel. Today, we're delighted to have Paul Young with us. Uh, Paul, you're probably best known for writing The Shack, I would think. Uh, You have written some other books, including Eve and uh, The Lies We Believe About God. Um, But it's great to have you. I wonder, I believe you wrote The Shack. You were never expecting to be an author. But uh, you wrote The Shack for Your Children, is that right? I wonder what they think about it. Ah, great question. Um, Excuse me. At at the time, we had basically nothing. I mean, as far as we were living in a little rental house that had about um, 950 square feet, you can translate for yourself. And um, and, uh, five of, no, four of the six children were still at home. Two of them were at college and uh, university. And um, Kim had been asking me for about four years. She would say, you know, someday you should write something as a gift for our children because you think outside the box. And uh, later she told me she was thinking like four to six pages. And the year I turned 50 was the year I finally felt like a, a healthy human being. It took me that long to work through all of my uh, garbage and the harm that had been done to me, as well as the harm that I'd done, and um, and you know had nothing to give the, the the kids for Christmas. Our youngest was about twelve years old at the time. So on the train, mostly to one of my three jobs, I wrote it, and then I went down to a, a local printing shop and made fifteen copies because you get a price break at fifteen, <laughs> and. Um, I gave it to my children for Christmas. And it's like, oh, thanks, dad, a book. (laughs) (laughs) So it took them, it took them a while um, to actually read it. And, uh, you know, because I did this and then I went back to work. It never had crossed my mind to be a published author. It wasn't on my, you know, dream list or my bucket list or anything like that. And, um, and it had a, it had an impact on them. Kim, it took her the longest to read it. And when she read it, she, she's like, what's everybody so excited about? And, um, and our oldest son, Chad, he says, mom, you know, you have to realize that we've grown up the last few years with all of this. So, and Kim loves Crossroads, which is the next novel. She loves that book a lot better than she liked The Shack. Um, So, uh, you know, I'll tell you one little story. Our son, Andrew, who is um, at university studying to be a mechanical engineer, he calls me one day and he's he's sobbing. And he said, Dad, I've just spent the last two hours standing in the shower. And uh, he says, you know, chapter 15 and chapter 15 is Festival of Friends. And in that chapter, there's a scene where uh, Mackenzie is standing on the hill watching this celebration from a distance standing next to the holy spirit and that is how i felt most of my life i was always on the outside looking in and a lot of that was shame because it was like if if you get found out that you're here somebody's going to kick you out you know and um but that's the only chapter that i wrote in in one sitting that has never been touched by a rewrite or an editor it is exactly in the book the way i wrote it the day i wrote it and um in that you know, Jesus walks into this celebration from a distance and Mackenzie and Jesus catch eyes. 
And Jesus smiles and he says, and, and from a distance, Mackenzie hears him say, hey, Mac, I'm especially fond of you, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so Andrew calls me and he goes, dad, I heard him say that to me. And he's just weeping. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, that's the kind of um, ripple that you're just so grateful for. Yes. And uh, so the kids, ki different children were impacted with different parts, you know, as people are. So, yeah. And and to have it ripple into my own family that way was enough. I In that little story, I just thought after listening to it, all right, that's enough. Yes. You know, I'd, I'd written it for them and they heard different things. And that is obviously enough. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's great. And uh, for anyone who hasn't read it or heard of The Shack, I don't know how, it went on to become a New York Times bestseller. How many, do you know how many copies it sold? Um, it's in 50 languages and it's probably sold around 25 million copies, yeah. which puts it in crazy, puts it in the top 50 fiction novels of all time. Yeah. And, uh, and here, you know, I made 15 copies at the local printer. <laughs> and you know it wasn't until my friends start giving it away because they read it right away yeah. and then and then they started giving it to their friends and this whole thing happened yeah well i have to say the thing i took away from it was the idea of trinity as a community being giving away love and today is valentine's day it won't be when it's released but it is valentine's day and uh i have to yes. remind my wife about that but um <laughs> <laughs> myself even but uh, it's appropriate anyway. Uh, thank you, Paul, so much. And um, it's great to have you with us. Steph Smart, as uh, I'm sure most of our listeners will know. Um, Steph, I think you said recently that you performed all or part of your I Am Mark presentations over 100 times. Is that correct? Yeah, that is it's correct. It's not the whole performance, the whole of the gospel, is it? So you don't do the whole book every time. And I just wondered how you decide which parts to do on each occasion. I went to one in Eastley when you were doing the, the whole passion which was an yeah. obvious choice but what what about other times i think it depends on what the venue wants in terms of time oh. and if it's uh if it's a shorter time i do have to make some kind of radical decisions uh, and it's really really hard to do actually david to be honest um and sometimes i look back on, on a performance and think you know that was a mistake leaving that bit out it could have put that oh. in actually and taken something else out so no it is really hard but in terms of when 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 I first started doing this in earnest and started doing the whole gospel or at least the, whole, the broad sweep of it, we realised my director and I quite quickly that it was going to be impossible to do the whole thing for most audiences. They wouldn't be able to take just one person on stage, however good an actor he was, um, yeah. for two and a half hours. So we had to cut it, and and um, yeah, um, it was a fascinating process actually. And um, we thought, and I again, I kind of worm at this now but we thought well they're two feedings of a large crowd of people and they seem quite similar these stories so why don't we just cut out one of them uh little did i know that they are actually fundamentally different in in, in a key way which we've hopefully touched on in, in a previous podcast so it, you know it's, it was a hard thing to do we, we did it simply on the basis of what's repetitive what might be a bit too controversial for some people to stomach it was that sort of decision yeah, that yeah. came up. Great, thank you, thank you. I have um, a question. We'll get on talking about the passage in a minute, but first yeah. of all, Paul, go ahead. Um, for Stefan. Oh, right. Is is there anything? What was the thing, or what was the most impacting thing when you're doing this? Because you're dealing with the text. Yeah. So, what in your mind changed from the beginning and start of doing this to the hundredth time you've done this right what was one of those things that really changed in your mind and heart i think for me it's partly to do with what we're doing now actually paul we're doing this podcast and we're trying to get between the lines of <clears throat> and i think the fund most fundamental thing i've learned is it's it is a fantastic story but then i'm going to say something which sounds quite similar but actually is different and it's also a fantastic story. In other words, just like you, Mark crafted this. And he had a particular 
a particular agenda is not quite the right word. He had a vision in mind. He had an answer he wanted to give to certain questions. And as I got to know this gospel, having done it a hundred times or whatever, and having dwelt with it and prayed with it and talked about it with other people like yourself, I found my admiration for the author uh, as, has grown substantially. And to understand him as a mind, as a human being, albeit inspired by God, but wow. as a mind who has um, a particular idea and a, he has a particular understanding of how to entice his listeners, how to intrigue them, how to help them kind of focus on what was happening to the early church it, it, yeah amazing so i think it's, it's my appreciation of the author that's come up the most important for me so he's thought of that question and you hear peter behind mark yeah i do hear peter behind mark there's no doubt about it from my point of view and what the early church seemed to say that peter was a source here a very key source and mark kind of wrote down what peter told him but I mean, I, again, I, I I see it as a as a process. So he didn't. I don't think he wrote down in the sense of you know I'm just the dictating. I'm just I'm just being dictated to here. I think there's a there's a crafting here, and as we'll hopefully discover a bit later on as we talk about the passage we've we've got before us. Um, so yeah, Peter, it's, you see the eyewitness elements to it definitely all the way through. There are so many beautiful details that couldn't have been um, available to someone who is looking at this second hand. It, it's something that was reported on a, from a first hand basis, I'm no doubt about it. That's what makes Mark so amazing. It's also, it's a memory, it's an eyewitness account, as well as being a wonderful work of literature, as well as being something that I, I think just appeals to the imagination in a way that I don't think any other book that I've read actually does. It's just so dramatic and it, it almost it almost um, grabs you to say, come on, be part of this story, be involved. I, I think that's great. Amazing. Great. Well, let's get on with the passage, shall we? Today's passage is called The Greatest Commandment in the NIV anyway. The context is it's just after the parable of the tenants. The religious leaders have already been asking Jesus some questions to try and catch him out. Uh, a teacher of the law then comes along and asks Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Uh, as usual, Lucy Warner is going to read the passage for us before we start the discussion. So over to you, Lucy. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, New International Version, the greatest commandment. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. That's great. Thank you very much, Lucy. Um, well, I think we'll dive straight in, actually. We're going to split this up into four sections, but feel free to, to blur the edges a little bit. Um, a teacher of the law came up to Jesus and heard them debating, and he asked them, which is the most important commandment? Can there be a most important commandment? What do you want to say to that, Paul? Well, everything is summed up here, right? And what I love about this is that it says, there are no, there's no greater commandment than these. Singular commandment, plural these, right? So you, you have to understand that these two quote unquote commandments are actually one. Right. And uh, so there's not a, a hierarchy of value here. There's a total union between the loving of God and the loving of others. And uh, so that strikes me right off the bat that 
that there's no division. And, and when Jesus answers the question that way, it becomes obvious to everybody there that he is setting the stage that your relationship to God and your relationship to others is the same. And uh, I think that's part of what was startling to everybody right there, because they're used to having a list of, you know, the Ten Commandments or whatever. And this is all summed up, and it takes it to a very internal kind of union between our this quote-unquote vertical relationship and then our horizontal relationship. Like there's no there's no difference here. And that becomes quite confrontive uh, and exposing, which is necessary. Right. Steph? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's amazing. I think you've hit upon, for me, the, the most important thing. And it's a question is, how come there are two parts and yet it's clearly a unity? And I, I, I've heard Paul and, and David, I, I guess you may as well have heard this, so many explanations about what the two how they get together i mean the fact is they come from different parts of the bible they don't they don't cohere normally in the old testament you've got one the first one love the lord your god from deuteronomy and the second one's from leviticus and i don't think there are any other people before jesus have put them together like that so you've got that problem and then and then people kind of come up with all sorts of explanations I have to be honest, it's only recently as I've thought about this and talked about it with friends, I've, I think I've become to see how they could be a united thing. And I'll, I'd be interested in your view on this, Paul, but I, I think it's it's not about, you, as some people used to say to me when I was in a, as a, a baby Christian, yeah, the only way you can love people is to love God first. Like the love you have for people is out of your love for God. I, I'm sure there's truth in that, but I don't think that's the explanation here. Nor are they two, as you just said, they're not two parallel commandments that somehow relate to each other in a vague sort of way. No, they're one. They're one. They are united. So what is it about these two commandments that make them, or these two parts to the commandment, that make them united? And as I've talked about this with my friend John Burnett, who's been on the show before as a as one of our guests, uh, he he pointed out something which I'd never seen before, but it made me realize: hold on, this is this is powerful stuff. Because Jesus had talked in, in in an earlier episode when he talks to the Pharisees and the Herodians about the the denarius, he says, "Whose image is this?" And they say, "Caesar's." And uh, and I think Jesus's reply: there's many facets to Jesus's reply, but one of them is that the image of God is mankind, i.e. Caesar. Caesar belongs to God. So even Caesar is under God's authority and under God's care. And for me, what links these two parts is the same thing. I think what Jesus is doing is building on that, potentially. When we love our neighbor, when we love ourselves, we're doing the same thing as loving God because we are loving God's image. We, individuals, and you, me, all of us, are the image of God. Jesus himself is the prime image of God. And so to love our neighbor and ourselves means it's no different, in a sense, to loving God. They're part of the same thing. And that raises us, doesn't it, in terms yes. of our own self-worth, in terms of our appreciation of others onto a whole wholly different level i've only i'm for my sins only just begun i think to understand this that when so um yeah go ahead no but when when the bible says we're made in the image of god it, it means <laughs> it means what it says yeah yeah and that's a huge deal especially for those of us who've grown up on the law side of christianity you know, Jesus is addressing a community of people um, of which the religious leaders fall into two ditches. On the one side, you have the Pharisees, of which the teacher of the law would probably most identify, which is all about 
the law. So they're concerned with the law, right? So, so when a conversation comes up about the poor people, the big question for the law keepers would be like the disciples. So who sinned? That's the immediate response. Who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? You know, the man born blind in John 9. And uh, so they're, they're working out um, the, the legalisms about all these things. But the presupposition is that you're a sinner, that that's the truth of who you are. And then you have the Sadducees who are idealists, right? They could talk about, you know, the poor are this, they're an idealistic group. Let's talk about the poor, you know, as an idealism. And, and so you've got two ditches. Jesus didn't do that. He walked down the road where all the poor people were because the poor people weren't in either ditch. Yeah. And uh, so this issue of being made in the image of God becomes front and center to everything. What's your identity? Is your identity that of a sinner? Or is your identity being made in the image of God, being a child of God? And that makes all the difference in the world. So what is what is underneath? What is the truth of your being? The truth of any being? And, and two things the early church was very strong about. One was, you cannot exist if the nature of God, if the actual presence of God does not indwell you, you will immediately lapse into non-being. The fact that God has given to every person life and breath and everything, to quote Acts 17, and therefore every person is a child of God without exception. And uh, like... Um, um, like the early church, I'm trying, Athanasius would say, if that is not true, you would immediately lapse into non-being. So the truth is that you're made in the image of God, you're a child of God, and the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this one God, dwell in you, whether you know it or not, right? There is, there's no sinner's prayer that is offered in the New Testament as the door through which you must go to enter the kingdom of God. The presupposition is that, you, that you're, the truth of your being is that you're made in the image of God. And, and the truth of your being is that you're indwelt by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The issue is you don't see it and you don't know it. So you act out of what you've been told. And what you've been told is, you know, and, and you know, we have a long history in terms of my side of the family the family of faith who've been indoctrinated by, you know, people like Luther and Calvin, all these lawyers, Augustine, right, who've told you that the truth of your being is that you're snow-covered dung. Yeah. That's the truth of your being. And so now Jesus has come to wrap you in his righteousness so you're acceptable to the Father. That's not the truth of your being. And here's the deal. Wholeness Wholeness is when the ways of your being, the ways that you live your life are an actual expression of the truth of your being. That's wholeness. But we got it backwards. We think that the ways we live our life define the truth of our being. And so we'll say things like, well, I am just an impatient person. And what you're doing is talking about the ways of your being, not the truth of your being, but you're using an I am statement. You know, and so you're saying the truth of my being is that I'm just impatient. No, the truth of your being is that you're made in the image of God and dwelt by patience. And mm -hmm. so the truth is, I am patient by nature. And, you know, in my life, to use a somewhat of a graphic example, is that, you know, I've got sexual abuse in my history. I've got abandonment in my history. I've got harm in my history. I've got a difficult relationship with my father in my history. And, and all of that uh, culminates in, in one particular, and uh, a lot of them actually, but one that I want to refer to, and that is by the time I'm 12, I'm addicted to pornography as a 12-year-old. And I hate it. I hate the addiction. I don't want the addiction, but it's it is the safe way to have an imagination of a relationship without the risks involved in a real one, right? And so um, 
I am stuck. And I carried that into my marriage, Kim didn't know, and I fought it, right? Because we think self-discipline and self-control are basically the same thing, but they're not. Self-discipline is trying to manage your identity from the outside. Self-control is something from the inside out. But if you fundamentally think that you're a sinner, that you are this snow-covered dung, then you have nothing on the inside out of which you then live. All you have is discipline from the outside in one form or another, accountability group or whatever. Mm. And and when when I blew up my life, when Kim caught me in a four in a in a three month adulterous relationship with one of her best friends, my choice was to either find a way to change or to kill myself. And because you know the world will be better um, without the presence of this piece of garbage, and. Uh, and so when I, and I don't even know, it was the grace of God and Kim's fiery fury and a bunch of other things. And I began to, to deal with looking for a way to change. The issue of identity became front and center, right? So what's the truth of who I am? Am I just a piece of garbage that is trying his best, right? Am I caught in a struggle between a good dog and a bad dog? And the question is, who are you going to feed today? You know, is that is that the reality of my life? Well, I'm exhausted by this, you know, and I keep I keep failing. And the the thing that began to fundamentally change that addiction and broke it was this issue of identity. And when I realized that because I'm made in the image of God, the truth that the deepest place of my being was I'm I'm like God. That is, I am patient by nature, which meant I am pure of heart by nature, yeah. and I am self-controlled by nature. Those are those are true about my very being. And what I've done is I didn't know. And and I forgot. And so I'm not an impatient person. I am actually patient but I'd forgotten the truth of my being. And so I, I acted out. Uh, the way that a person thinks in their heart so becomes the ways of their being. When you watch anybody in terms of how they live their life, it, it doesn't expose the truth of their being. It exposes the lies that they believe about the truth of their being. Right. And so you're, you're right. This is a fundamental reality. And this is true for every single person, whether or not they've ever prayed a sinner's prayer, whether or not they're, they're caught in some religious system, like Christians often are, my people, or, you know, they could be Muslim or whatever. And when you see someone act according to the truth of their being without knowing the source of that, they're functioning according to love. Right. And this was a really difficult thing for me growing up. We would say, how come those folks who are not in the fold in the kingdom of God are acting more loving than I am? Right. And we would say, well, you know, it's a different kind of love. Hmm. Uh, we would make some excuse rather than recognizing that no. Love indwells them whether they know his name or not. Yeah. And I can I can recognize that. So why would there be, if I am indwelt by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you are, and we're both made in the image of God, why wouldn't these two facets of loving God and loving the other be absolutely the one thing? Right. Right? Yeah, makes sense. I mean, what you're talking about, I guess, for me and for many people who are listening to this podcast, is the sort of thing that we all need to listen to again and again and again, mm -hmm. because um, like you, I think for many of us, we've been brought up in a different way of thinking, where there is such yeah. a thing as a sinner's prayer, whether there's a clear demarcation between those who are in and those who are out. Yep, and for me, it's a it's a struggle, but a good struggle to be involved in. Where I, I'm beginning to recognize the the 
the limitation of that way of thinking. But it's it's a struggle because many of us have been brought up for years and years and years with that kind of way of thinking. Yep, absolutely. But nevertheless, nevertheless, it is fundamental. And, you know, when you hear people talk about the fact that it's before original sin, <laughs> there was something called original blessing, that God made us good. He looked at us. and Very good. It was very, very good. good. Exactly. <laughs> and I think we, we Protestants from the 16th century onwards, we've looked at, we've looked at ourselves and at others in a way that, for me, it feels skewered and limited and unhelpful, actually, destructive. So when we're talking about loving ourselves and loving our neighbor, well, uh, you know, I can think of ways in which um, my heritage has got, got us into a place where we're often tormented about ourselves. The sense of self-rejection becomes something more paramount, even though we're trying to please God. Actually, as you say, we see us ourselves as somehow like dung, and we've just by 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 the, the fortune of having come to believing in Christ, somehow we've been made righteous, but essentially we are we are depraved. That sort of view is so destructive on all sorts of levels, spiritually, psychologically. And we're, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're told we have a sin nature, yeah. right? And, and if you read Acts 17, where Paul is speaking to the Athenians, right? These are not followers of Jesus. And he says, this is true, that you live and move and have your being in him, in this unknown God, right? Even as your poets have said. And then he says, you are all children of God. And because you are children of God, and he goes on. That's a really difficult passage for those of us who want to think that our love for the other person is, is something that we're doing for them because we we know better, and so it's a kindness that we're expressing to them. And suddenly, loving the other person is not something that is nature to us. It is something that we do. And immediately when you start doing that, you put yourself and elevate yourself into a category of being greater than that person. And now I'm going to have a ministry to them, you know, because I just, I just happen to be you know, better than them. And and so now I, I'm going to love not because it's my nature, but because it's an act that I'm doing that would be pleasing to God. And even though they don't deserve it, and it's like, and you did, I did? You know, this is the reality of being made in the image and likeness of God. It is our nature to love. And so the ways of our being become an expression of the truth of our being. And that's natural. But if you have a sin nature and you are snow-covered dung, I call it piece of, I don't use the word dung, I use a much stronger word. But, but because we have this, we've been trained by this theology, we are always at war with ourselves. Always. And so what, what have we done? We hide it. We don't talk about being caught in adultery. We don't talk about the harm and the hurt that is in us. We put our righteous faces on as if we're overcoming. You know, we're overcomers of what the sin nature is doing. We're, we're not honest about the struggles that we find ourselves. And the idea that we would love others as we love ourselves, we are stuck because we have no capacity to love ourselves because how can you love a sin nature? How can you love that? And then we then we created this imputed righteousness garbage that, that Jesus has to cover you up in order to sneak you into heaven. As if God is going, God the Father is like, do you smell that? It smells like dung, you know. And Jesus is like righteousness, you know, putting the righteous perfume on us. That, like George MacDonald said, you know, of all the ideas and doctrines, that has got to be one of the worst that, that theologians have ever created because it immediately separates us from both the truth of who we are 
and the love of God who indwells us. So we participate in God loving the other. We're, we're not performing to prove that we are righteous enough to love the other. And so this is a God who indwells us and we participate in God loving not only us, but in God loving the world, God loving that child who is in front of us. And it doesn't become something about their performance, you know, and it's it's heart and soul and mind and strength. And yeah. I think that's partly a sequence, right? Okay. You, you, it's heart. And, and this is where revelation happens. This is the heart has to see something before the mind can change. You have to go from heart change to mind change and then to form change. How okay. we then live our lives. Go Looking ahead. At this, that, that's absolutely really, really persuasive what you've been saying. And I know that our, some of our listeners are going to have some, well, I hope we'll get some debate going, Steph, don't you? I'm sure you're used to this, uh, Paul. But um, we, we, we've got some listeners and a couple of questions on this section that you're, you're moving yep. to. So one is that the Shema in verse 29 and 32 seems to hold greater significance in Jewish culture as Christianity feels like it wants to skip on to. Um, so skip on to the love the Lord your God. So Jesus says the most important one is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Gareth's asking, I wonder whether we need to actually stop and, and focus on that. And the other question is, is a straightforward question. Jesus had all these, he says hundreds, certainly lots of people asking him questions, which he never seems to answer. He answered yeah. this one straight away. So I wonder what, Steph, do you want to speak onto that? And uh, take I'll that on. Go. I mean, I think the idea of the, the hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, is fascinating. I, I just wonder, um, maybe Paul, you could help me here, but I wonder whether the original context of that commandment is the Lord is saying to his people, Israel, there is only one God. There is no other. There, you know, there is only one God. He's greater above all other gods. All idols compared to the one God are, are as nothing. And and I think, therefore, that is relevant, actually, for us modern um, people, um, modern believers. Because, actually, whether we, we don't necessarily um, worship idols in the same way, perhaps, as the, the, the ancient Jews did in the Old Testament, but we do have idols. We are we are captivated by certain things that draw yeah. our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength away from the one God. So right. I, I think you know the question question is very astute. Actually, you know why do we not mention this? Well, because I think yeah th th this is important. I've forgotten the second part that you were mentioning there, David. Uh, uh, um... And also that would be very familiar, wouldn't it? That was bringing something that was familiar to the people that were listening. Um, yeah, why does Jesus decide to answer this question? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, 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 it's the only question he answers directly in the whole of the Gospels. Yeah. So what's going on? Is it because Jesus sees the sincerity in the teacher of the law's eyes as he asks this? I, I don't know. I mean, there's some debate as to whether this teacher of the law actually is someone who's on Jesus's side, at least at the beginning. I, I honestly don't know, but it, it, it is possible that he sees something in the honesty of his remarks. Some people say um, that when he's approached, when Jesus is approached, this teacher of the law is actually being antagonistic. No different to the other guys in chapter 12, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, even the same word that when it says he asked him, the word there could mean interrogate. So there, some some scholars have said this guy is no different. But I, I personally can't see that, and I, I honestly think there's a there's a degree of um, warmth from the man. Um, he he notices Jesus has given him a wise answer. He there's a phrase here. It says he heard, he heard them, and he. Saw that Jesus has given a good answer. And that hearing and seeing are very important words in Mark's gospel. Yeah, they they illustrate a sense of coming to know and see and realize God's kingdom. Um, it's quoted earlier on in the gospel as a way in which we know that God's, you know, he gives He gives um, sight to the blind. He gives, he makes the, the, the deaf hear. It's a, it's a sign of God's kingdom coming on us 
in, in this gospel. So to use those words suggests this man is, as Jesus says at the end, not far from the kingdom of God, right even at the beginning. So maybe that's your I, Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. And, uh, you know, all synoptic, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke include this. John assumes it. So in... In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is an, the issue of identity. That is, who is this? And um, and so this becomes a clear statement by Jesus that is impenetrable, right? This is an actual identification with the one God. And, I mean, that's what was being accused, is that he he would not do that. And I, and I agree. I think this teacher of the law has a great respect, and he's almost almost like pushing Jesus to make a declaration. And he must be a man of note. And uh, because I think that's partly why if he asks that question and gets a clear answer, we're, n- we're not going to ask anything like that again. I mean, it, it is really clear. Yeah. that he is right inside the community of the Jewish faith. And yeah. um, and so I'm, I'm with you on, this is a man who respects Jesus. He is going to clarify the situation for everybody to hear. So this is not going to be the basis for any accusation against Jesus, that he is part of, oh, multiple gods, that he is trying to bring something in that is syncretistic with the culture, and any of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think that's that... really interesting because I think, uh, I mean, the early church actually used this passage, I think, as part of their apologetics that they, they were they were being accused that you're bringing in another God. Um, and actually, no, this is the the one God we're talking about, or Jesus is talking about as well. So, yeah, and and he identifies he's a teacher of the law, which would you know put him in between the two houses. Hillel and Shammai, right? The two, and and Shammai would be more the the law side of things. And um, I think there was a comment by somebody that it was a slam dunk against them, right? Which which in a way it is, and but then it's the call to Hillel to as kind as you are in your interpretations. This has got to be extended to the ways that you love, you know, and. Um, and so I think there there is a lot going on inside this simple little <laughs> yeah. con- conversation. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there is. You've stopped. Okay. Um, one question that Anne had. So we, Anne was asking a question earlier, which I think you've already answered. But she said, do you think Jesus himself taught in general principles? Are some things in the epistles, the practical application of those principles for the time and place? Uh, can we and should we rethink how to apply those principles today? Slightly off the passage, but um, yeah, that- I don't think I. My answer would be no, absolutely not. Okay, um, that Jesus does not create another law called principles. Right. This when you deal with those passages in in the uh, epistles, for example, the whole first half of those epistles is identity based. Look who you are, and it's not principles; it's examples. Right. Here's an example of the way that we love one another. Here's an example based on the first half. So a lot of times we who are legalistic want to go to the second half and start, you know, teaching principles. Yeah, And it's it's like, no, you got to understand who you are. And here are some examples about how this then flows out. But you have to keep in mind your union with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit that that's the basis of the life. Otherwise, you're now creating a whole nother set of laws, right? And that's not a solution. And you've removed yourself one step. Well, we don't call them laws. We call them principles. And then now we can teach principles without any sense of the necessity of the indwelling Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you separate yourself from the life of these things, you now have a dead religion. And so... I I don't care about principles. I care about the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how it's being expressed in your life. You know, what does this actually look like when love is expressing itself? And so, because 
the love of the Father, Son, Holy, you know, the Shema, and then the addition of loving your neighbor is to destroy the idea that there is an external law here, you know, that there is this union between the two. Um, uh, it's one commandment. It's one yes. reality, right? There's not a separate sense in the second sec section that this is a bunch of principles now. You know, there's an absolute union between the two. We must we must move on a little bit, if that's all right. Um, in the third section, verse, tw verse 32, the man replied, well said, you're right in saying, good, a well said teacher. The man replied, you're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than, and then he brings all burnt offerings and sacrifices in. I mean, what what's that? Is that? Well, I mean, a lot of people. Leading like, laws again. Yeah, I, I, a lot of people who I read about this, the commentaries I read, and I'm not saying this is wrong. It just makes me wonder though. They say something like, okay, so the, 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 the teacher of the law brings in the stuff about burnt offerings, because actually this is crucial in terms of understanding the place of Jesus in Mark's gospel. That Jesus is in some ways going beyond what the ancient Jews were seeing as their duty in so far as their whole religion was based on the temple and worship in the temple. But Jesus now becomes the temple. And, and, and therefore, when the teacher of the law says it's better than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, that fits in that idea. Now, I can I can I can get I get the point about Jesus in some way taking on that role of being the temple in a new dispensation of God. I get that that comes through loud and clear in Mark, but I'm not sure that's what's going on in this particular passage. Insofar as the man says, it's greater than he's not discounting the burnt sacrifices. He's not saying they don't they're not important. They're just the, the two commandments or the two parts of the commandment that Jesus gives are more important than those. They're greater than those. So he's seeing things in, 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 in a ratio rather than saying one is, one is to, be, um, to be adhered to, the other is to be rejected. I don't know if that's too uh, and, No, I, and I agree with that too. And that is all of those things were reflections of the true light. They weren't the true light. Yes. And so it's, you know, that goes to the commandments and everything else. This is, this is something that they could see, but they, and so you're right. It's not like, oh, this was bad because this is good. No, all of these things had their place in the education. But, but now the real has come and so the real that was sought for is swallowing up all these things that they were a reflection of so it's light that is actually ahead of you that is casting itself backwards and these things all become part of shadow language it's not like they didn't matter they do matter and there's you know in the life of jesus he participated in those things but those things were always speaking of the light that is coming. And now the light has come. Okay, so we have this last section. Uh, we could talk about this all day, couldn't we? But um, so the last the last verse of this section, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from the kingdom of God. What does that mean? And also, from then on, no from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I wonder why we suggested earlier, maybe because they couldn't catch him out. Was that was that what it was about? Or so two questions there. Do you want to start kick off with that, Paul? Sure. So, you know, when I when I hear that, there's a couple things. One is uh, a little bit of tongue in cheek humor, and um, because Jesus identifies as the kingdom of God, and so it's like. You're not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> and, and, oh, yeah. Uh, yes, cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm right here, you know. <laughs> and um, and so, it, but there's also a gentle recognition that uh, as the teacher of the law, he is 
he is recognizing Jesus in violation of what a lot of others are accusing Jesus of. And, um, and you know, the, when Jesus says things like the kingdom of God is among you, again, you've got this response of, I'm here. I'm here. You're not far. And, um, and it's directly an invitation. It's directly to say, all right, step into this. You know, step into this. Um, what is this? What is this, Paul? When you say this, what, what do you mean? Actually making this a reality in your life. Because he's a teacher of the law. You know, it's no longer just a principle. It's not a law. This is how you live. And, um, and you know, the teachers of the law were used to talking about this, mm. not actually living this. And so I think that's part of it too. And And it's so, there is such clarity in this conversation. And I think that Jesus loves this man in such a way because he sees in him the desire for this clarity, not just for himself, but also for Jesus. And, and that clarity really puts a stop to the kinds of questions that there have been. Because a lot of those questions, because he, he won't answer them directly, because the questions are not there to actually hear the response. The questions are there to trap Jesus, to see if they can, you know, because what happens is when you're around somebody that wants to trap you, they don't care about your response. They care about the next question that they want to answer. Yeah. Uh, they want, you know, they want to get you. So they have a whole list of questions. And if you, if you answer one question well, they just go to the next one on the list. Yeah. There, there's no real application to this. No real, no, enter this. And here it is, right here. The two, the two who are greatest commandments that are actually one. That's really amazing. I love that. I, I, I love this idea of Jesus being there. Yes. Him joking almost that you're not far from the kingdom of God in that sense. Also that it's about more than just having a principle. It's about living it. That's important. And I, I think that's fair because as a teacher of the law, it's, it's potentially his problem that he will intellectualize. Uh, yeah. He won't actually live it from his heart. That's a different thing. I I wonder as, as well whether Jesus is onto something else. Though, you know, when I have acted this part, I've I've often felt a great deal of sympathy for the man, and I've wanted Jesus to say to him, "You know, you've done really well, brilliant. That's the end of the story. You've done it. You're in." But he doesn't. He says, "You're not far." There's an ambiguity. There's an there's a there's a question that's being left in our minds. So what does it take? What does it take to be in the kingdom of God? Hasn't the man got it? And I think that's, for me, that makes it even more exciting now as I, I reflect on it. That, that question, well, what, what's he got to do? Is actually a question we all need to ask ourselves. What is it we've got to do? Is, if that's not enough, if it, you know whether we, we whether he lives it from the heart or whether he intellectualizes it, if that's not enough, what what is it? How do we get in? And I think, I mean, I I'm not going to say that I know the answer to that question, but I would say that there, in Mark, from my understanding of the of the gospel, there are several things that that give us an indication of what Jesus might mean to be fully in, to be fully in. And that is to lose our lives. That is to follow him, even unto death. That means giving up on what we would normally have as our attachments, our our idols, if you like. You know, I think that a, a good way of thinking about it is something I read about recently from a, an author, a Jesuit author called Gerard Hughes, who talks about the kingdom of God is different to our kingdom. Our kingdom is one of wanting honor, wealth, power. And sometimes we live our lives 
even as Christians, unfortunately caught in that trap of wanting those things. But Jesus has a different view. Jesus' kingdom, God's reign, is about wanting what God wants. And even Jesus... So, had, that's really good. Even Jesus had that tussle, didn't he? Even at the end, tussle's not the right word, that incredible decision to make. You know, do I go, do I get what I want? Or do I get, do I go for what God wants? Because that means my death and, 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 and a huge, huge suffering. So he says, not what I want, but what you want. And I think that for me is what the kingdom is about. And for, for many of us, what we, what we struggle with are all these things that can hold us from following in that way. When Jesus talks in chapter three about, you know, who, who is my mother and my brother? It, for the ancient Jews, it's a family thing. You know, family is central to how they see themselves. Loyalty to one's family. But Jesus is saying, no, there's something above and beyond that. He's saying, who are my mother and my brothers? He who does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. It's what God wants. That's yeah. what yeah. being in the kingdom is. Yeah, it's a, it's a very personal invitation. He's taken it out of of all the conversation about the law, right? He's taken it, it's taken out of the intellectual reality and it's an invitation now. And, um, and that is, that is the, the crucifixion of this man's identity. Right. And, uh, I, I, I love that Jesus does that regularly. He doesn't leave the conversation in some kind of, you know, lofty sense of intellectuality. And it's like, so you're a teacher of the law. Join me. Is this going to be the reality in which you live and breathe and have your being? This is very similar, isn't it, Paul, to another episode in chapter 10, the young man who comes to Jesus. And says, you know, what do, what do I do, need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, give away your money to the poor and then follow me. And he goes away sad. And we don't know whether he does follow Jesus in the end or not. But I think that's the key, the key thing. It's about, are you prepared to give up all for me in, in the way that I've given up all for you? That's, that's it. And yeah. And that's a question in both of those instances, this one here and and in and the earlier one, where I think we as an audience, because we're listening to this story as Mark's this as Mark's audience, we are implicated in this question. You know, what do we think? Where are we gonna what are we gonna choose, actually? Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think that that's a really powerful, really powerful. I thought this I thought of the same thing, you know, before you started talking about it was the rich young ruler. And uh, but we could make a principle out of this so that you need to give everything that you have. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but it was very personal to him. You know, it was very. And it says that Jesus loved him, mm -hmm. you know, and you could say that in this situation as well, regardless of whether he's able to take that step or not, that this is a conversation in which Jesus is loving him. And through those eyes and interpreting through that kind of love, it changes the whole dynamic. From the beginning, this is love's response to this man. It is not love's response to the law, right? This is love's response to this man. And I think for me, that raises the question, the individual nature of God's love, that he knows in each case, in this, in this story and in the preceding story, what is necessary. It, with within that loving gaze that he gives for him for these people to follow him and to be in the kingdom yeah yeah and so this, for this man yeah, go ahead. for this man it's it's the kingdom of god is freedom and you are moving from the law to freedom you know and so so can you see that you're not far from it you know we've come all the way down this this road, and you know that I love you, do you want the freedom or not? And it will be a viable
violation of your identity as a lawyer, right? This has been amazing. Um, we are getting close to the end. Um, I would like to ask whether either of you wants to add anything to, the, to that you haven't had a chance to say. Paul. Say it, Stefan. I was going to say about, isn't that the choice we're all, we've all got? Yes, absolutely. You know, God loves each and every one of us yeah. and he offers this, us this freedom. Are we going to make that, that choice? Yeah, because we're not far from the kingdom of God, you know. <laughs> and as to where he, where they, and no one dared ask him any more questions, I, I think for me it's um, Jesus is, well, he's basically scored three slam dunks in the last few episodes. He is so powerfully wise, so wonderfully incisive. There is no, there's no other question they could ask him that would in any way trap him or yeah. show him up. There's only one response now, and that's to kill him. So in his response to this man, they have felt the implication for themselves. And they don't want to ask another question okay. that will be an invitation again in such a personal, loving way. So it's better not to ask. What a great way to end. I have one last question for you, Paul, which you've kind of answered already, really. But I love to ask our guests, what does this mean for you and for your life as in your walk with Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit? I'll leave it there just for a minute. Hmm. Stefan? <laughs> <laughs> it, it challenged me, Paul. It's challenged me, David, this passage. Um me too for first, what it's worth first of all the <laughs> idea of we are made in the image of god you know i i think i've many people like many people struggle on days uh, with um, self self-worth self-rejection but to know that i am made in the image of god and to love myself as is the same as loving god in that sense and to love my neighbor, similarly, is the same as loving God in that sense. It, it kind of blows everything out of the water in terms yeah. of what's really, really important. So this means a huge amount. Yeah, me too. It's a violation of religious duty, right? So I know that a lot of us think that going to church, doing our prayers, you know, giving having a ministry, whatever, is that's what it means to love God, you know, mm. and, and we place it in the hierarchy of value greater. But this is about loving the person who cuts you off in traffic. This is about loving the person at the store, you know, loving, loving the one whose attitude seems so bad, loving our enemy. To love these is to love God. It is to love God in a in such a more pure way than to give the burnt offerings of the attending or, you know. And so, so we have to ask about our burnt offerings and our rituals when they inhibit our capacity to love our children who feel abandoned by us because we're doing the work of God. No, loving your child is the work of God. Right. And so there is something that is so violating about this passage in terms of religious priorities. Right. And it comes right down to Am I loving those who are actually in front of me? Or am I trying to get past them to go do something for God? Yes. You know, and we've got to break that apart and go like, no, the act of loving the person in front of me, whether they're an enemy, a neighbor, they are the neighbor, right? And or my child or doing the dishes or taking out the garbage or, you know, cleaning up a mess and changing diapers. All of these are doing the work of God because they are acts of love that are by nature the way that I express my union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who, who is love, who indwells me, 
who I get to participate with as God loves. I get to love as God is loving the person who is in front of me. This is why 1 John 4 says, Dear friends, let us one, love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And that is not talking to just Christians. On that note, <laughs> we just lost half our listeners. No, I know. I'm sure they'll be listening. I hope that's uh, uh, been really, really thought-provoking and will lead to some very fruitful discussions in coming days and weeks. Paul and Stefan, thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts with us. It's been a lot of fun and enlightening. Uh, we've enjoyed having you too with us, listener, lovely listeners. And we hope you'll check out the website, iam-mark.com and the Facebook community. Do you have a website, Paul? I'm sure you do. Oh, I do. I bet I go on it maybe once every five years. And uh, plenty of books to look. Yeah, at. but there's there's a lot of stuff connected to it. Wm for William. Wmpauljoung.com, and uh, I don't even know what's on it anymore. But it's just I'm just. You might find something. I, I might just, good yeah, I mean, you can go on YouTube and put my name in there, and there's all sorts of stuff to link it's to. Enough. It's been an absolute honor to be with you. Well, thank because you. when when I see you. I'm seeing the face of God. Well, I think he'll be back for our very last episode, if I'm not wrong, wrong with that. If God if God wills and I'm alive. And uh, and with Bradley Jerzak and um, C. Baxter Kruger, who, who we all know and love. Great. Thank you. Please, listeners, do join us again or listen to the 50 previous episodes, uh, which you can find in the usual places. That's all we have time for today. So it's goodbye from Paul Young. So, like I said, so honored to be with you. Every conversation's a two-way street. It's been enriching for me. So thank you. Goodbye from Stephen Smart. And me. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, David. It's been wonderful. And from me, and next till next time. Goodbye. If you enjoyed this episode of Question Mark and don't want to miss any future episodes, be sure to click on the subscribe button. This also means other people can find the podcast and join the conversation too. We'd also love if you could leave a review so we know what was good and what we can improve for future episodes. If you want to find out more about I Am Mark, Stefan Smart's solo word-for-word dramatisation of Mark's gospel, go to www.sleek.bio slash iammark, where you can sign up for free for his newsletter and a whole host of other goodies. Join us and our special guests next time, where we'll continue to explore the greatest story ever told together. If you want to get involved with the podcast or have any questions or comments in the meantime, please do get in touch using the I Am Mark social media channels. We'd love to hear from you. We'll light it up, we won't come down. And the sun can't stop us now. Watching it come true, it's taking over you. And this is the greatest show, where it's covered in all the colored lights. And the runaways are running the night. Impossible comes true, it's taking over you. And this is the greatest show.